Welcome to another edition of Mormon Land. I'm Managing Editor Dave Noyce, and I'm joined today by our senior religion reporter, Peggy Fletcher Stack. Hello again, Peggy. Hi, Dave. The stories of members walking away from the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints are legion. And plenty of books have been written in recent years documenting and addressing the concerns of these disaffected members. But what can loved ones and loved ones and leaders still in the faith do to help, to serve, to embrace those one-time members? That's what David Osler set out to explore in his new book, Bridges, Ministering to Those Who Question. A retired business executive, Osler has lived on several continents and has served as a bishop, stake president, and mission president. He joins us today by phone from his home in Falls Church, Virginia. Dave, welcome. Well, thanks, Dave and Peggy. Good to be on. So let me start with a quick, simple question. Why did you write this book? <laughs> I never thought I'd write a book, but um, <laughs> I felt I needed, uh, in, in, a, in a calling I was involved in, to be able to kind of systematically write and understand about contemporary issues under, underlying disaffiliation from the LDS faith. And so um, it ended up not being a simple project, and it ended up becoming a book. So do you want to describe the book to us, to our listeners? Yeah, so um, the book is um, a different book than, than I think has been out there. Many of the books on uh, LDS faith crisis and disaffiliation have been written to those that um, are going through a faith crisis or those that are struggling with belief. Um, and in my research, I, I just didn't find much that was written for uh, a father or mother or, you know, ward or stake leader to help them understand um, why someone would choose to walk away. And so my approach was um, ask the people who walked away why they walked away and um, listen to their voices, um, analyze um, what they say, and um, be able to frame up for leaders what those issues are and um, to help us basically understand them. So I, I really did three things. Um, I studied what was written and already studied. Uh, I'm not an academic, and there's been much good thought on that. The second is um, I asked local ward leaders uh, through a survey that I ran. I had about 514 responses on why they felt that people left, what they were doing about it, what was effective, um, and to understand how they are treating the issue today. And then I engaged a third group of people, those that are identified in it, that currently identify as being in a faith crisis. And I asked um, them to complete a survey. I had 320 respondents um, and asked some of the same questions about underlying faith issues and then convened a focus group of 83 people in a faith crisis and asked them specific questions. And through the data, um, through stories, through um, individual interviews, then uh, I, I, I formed a structure that created uh, a way for uh, local leaders and, and family members to understand this uh, group of people that once formally believed that now no longer are we talking, uh, Dave, about adults who have left the church? I mean, is there an age breakdown or, or what? Fundamentally about adults. So, and people leave for a lot of reasons. And um, 
although I identify those reasons more broadly and understand that these principles are applicable to all, I focus primarily around adults that were formally believing um, that uh, that now no longer believe or are not sure what they believe. So it, it's not uh, the 14-year-old that wanders away. Um, it's the 35-year-old who's uh, been married in the temple and has served as a Relief Society president um, and what triggered her uh, leaving the church. You know, uh, as, you're, as you know, religions across the spectrum are seeing a shedding of, of members or people, you know, disaffiliating or, or whatever. Um, largest religious groups are sort of like spiritually inclined, growing or spiritually inclined, but they, they don't affiliate. Are there some problems, though, that are unique to Mormonism on this front? You know, I, I did read um, um, resources about broad-level disaffiliation from religion in the Western culture, um, and we have many of those same issues in, in the Latter-day Saint faith. But there are some unique issues that we face um, in our faith that, um, uh, you know, can be particularly troublesome to someone who grew up in the faith. And, um, you know, those issues uh, deal with um, complicated uh, church historical issues where members um, have had a fairly simplistic um, and generalized narrative about church history, one that is durable in the Philippines, or where I served as a mission president in Sierra Leone, um, but are more complicated in a, a United States or a Western culture where we have a broader information about church history and and have more critical uh, examination of those effects. We also have some unique policies um, and issues in the church that deal with um, the LGBTQ community, um, with gender issues, and um, also with kind of an overarching political and social conservatism that exists within the church. And for people that have concerns about those issues, then um, they become um, important drivers for uh, faithful members of the church to reevaluate their faith and what they believe. So in all of this research, Dave, what surprised you the most? You know, um, listening to people and their stories um, and um, understanding that for many of these people that leave, um, it is a very difficult um, emotional um, uh, process for them. Um, Some of them want to stay for just about every reason you can think of, but just can't. And and their, their struggle may last months or even years. Um, the struggle is often done alone without someone to help them. Um, I, I talked with um, a man in my book, his name's uh, Mike, um, and I talked with him for about two hours and he went through this this process and, and he's married in the temple, served a mission, and uh, for a year he didn't feel comfortable even talking to his wife about some of the issues and concerns that um, that he had, and and to you know his whole fabric is built around a Mormon identity. Um, what he did in his his youth and in his young adulthood, even into uh, his thirties, was so tightly wound around the church that as he's having these these thoughts and feelings, 
um, that kind of shake him to the core of his identity. He he can't talk to his wife. Uh, he, he doesn't have a bishop that he feels comfortable talking to, and so he's all alone. And that's a kind of a common story um, that, that I felt is a group of people that find a concern, they don't have a place to process it. If they process it publicly, um, they're not met with acceptance or or love. They're not met often with judgment and labeling and uh, blaming, perhaps, that their doubt is because of something they did. Um, and, and they have a lot to lose, whether it's family or position in the community or friends or sometimes even relationships at work that can affect their careers. And, and, and that surprised me. Um, and, and, and that was particularly poignant to me to see um, the, the isolated struggle that they go through. Did you, before that, did you sort of buy the idea that, oh, these are people who either can't live the standards or are offended by something someone said? Is that why it surprised you? You know, I, I didn't think that going in. Um, um, and one of the reasons that I conducted the research that I did and the way I did it was um, to test that hypothesis out to see how many leaders felt that. Um, and I found that um, many and maybe even most local leaders, meaning ward and stake leaders, kind of attribute a faith crisis to the things you just said, Peggy. You know, they were lazy, there's some secret sin or some behavior that they didn't do devout enough, uh, or that they were offended uh, by people. And, you know, there, there is some of that, I'm sure. But when, when I talked to this group of uh, members in a faith crisis, both by survey and individually, you know, those just weren't the issues that were important to them. They didn't see that in themselves. Um, and, and so that disconnect became very apparent as, uh, as I conducted uh, the data part of the research. Uh, so I never really felt that, um, at least not overtly. I think I kind of felt it uh, subconsciously because it is a message that is sometimes um, uh, kind of related church. You know, we hear this of Simon Ryder, whose name was misspelled and left the church, and Thomas Marsh, who mm-hmm. his wife and someone else had a dispute over milk. And, you know, we, we think it's that simple. And, and you know, it, it's not that simple. And even our general authorities know that it's not that simple. And they have spoken about how you know, people do struggle sometimes for years with this, and it's not just simple why someone would lose faith. That's interesting, too. Jana Reese's research, I think, also supports that, that this is something that these members grapple with for quite some time before they reach that point, correct? Yeah, they do. And, um, you know, believing members don't know what to make sense of someone like I described with Mike and Amanda's another person in my, my book, and you just don't know what to kind of think about them. How could someone kind of with a lifetime commitment to the church, um, you know, say, I can't do it anymore? And I think it's our natural reaction, um, independent of anything we teach at church, to find kind of quick explanations for why that would be the case. You know, we just naturally have to do that. It's I think it's just kind of part of our brains. And so it takes a much more um, careful self-aware, analytic approach to step back and say, now, why did she really leave? 
Um, and it requires us in that moment to kind of be vulnerable, probably talking with the Amandas and the Mikes in our lives and kind of really understanding from their point of view, um, you know, what, what triggered them and what caused them to, to leave the faith and, um, and, and to withhold our judgment as we go through that and, and to just listen and to accept that the issues that they're talking about are real and important to them, even if we don't agree with them. But, you know, they're important to them. And to give them that space to, to verbalize that in a, a safe way without us wanting to put a label on them, calling them anti-Mormon or apostates or, you know, so many of the other terms that we quickly apply so that um, we can understand and characterize their uh, faith transition. So, Dave, what do what do members who have stepped away from the faith in your conversations and interviews with them want from families, friends, and leaders who are still in the faith? Do one of some of them just want to be left alone? Do they want to be, as you mentioned, listened to? What what do they want from members who are still in, if anything? You know, um, that's that's interesting. I, I, if it's appropriate, I'd just like to share some of the words from Amanda on this because I, I think she kind of poignantly describes it. Um, so I write that uh, the strained relationship that has caused Amanda the most pain in, is the relationship with her parents. Before she had her faith crisis, her mother told her that having a child leave the church is the worst thing that could ever happen to her. She knows they are devastated because they believe, based on church theology, that her leaving the church will affect their relationship in eternity. She wants her parents to still trust that she is a good person, that she is led by and connected to God, and that she will teach her children to love, be kind, and follow God. But she still feels their disappointment and reflects that perhaps it was asking too much for them to be proud of her. So that's pretty tender. So it's really what they want is um, a relationship with their family members of of. A- of acceptance, love, and not re- not rejection, yeah, and judgment, you know, I guess. They, yeah. You know, people leave for unthoughtful reasons, but Amanda left for thoughtful reasons. It wasn't a whim. It wasn't, you know, a moment. It was, um, uh, for her, it was a principled decision to leave the church. And um, we can disagree with the reasons and say, I wouldn't think about them that way, or I don't feel about them that way. But I think what she wants is she wants to be respected for the decision that she made. Not that we would say that's the decision I ought to make, but to be confident in her kind of goodness, the values that caused her to say, I can't go there anymore, um, and to be respected that she has done it in a way that is honorable. Um, and to not have it cost her um, kind of the connection and relationship to her family, but apparently it has. So what's your best advice um, for helping members who are still in dealing with those who have left? What's your best advice? So if, if you're... You know, if you're a family, um, like I'm a dad and not all of my children hold traditional letters of saint beliefs, um, it's been to just accept them kind of for who they are. They're adults. They make choices. I don't agree with all of them, whether they're on faith or other issues. 
um, but they're my kids. And so I, I, I've learned how to just listen to them and just accept where they are um, and to suspend my judgment. They know, you know, at this point, with all the church stuff we've done in our lives, you know, what I feel and how I feel about it. Um, and if they want to talk about it, and sometimes they actually do, if, if, if I can withhold judgment, um, if I don't label them, if I don't blame them, then we can have good, healthy conversations. And, and you know, Peggy, whenever we do, I always learn something. Um, just because I'm the dad and just because I've done this, that, or the other doesn't give me kind of a monopoly on understanding. Uh, and so I can, I can learn. Now, if I'm a leader and if I'm in a, you know, ward council in some sort of capacity or just a regular person looking across the pew to another person that might have concerns or questions or someone who used to be there that's not anymore, I think the same advice works, and that is to listen, to sit down and ask questions um, if they want to, and even ask them if they want to, to have, um, you know, a discussion. Um, but to never do it with kind of the agenda that I'm going to fix them or say something that will cause them to think differently, but uh, to just truly try and understand um, uh, what they're feeling and, and what their you know their 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 concerns are. Sometimes there's concerns um, about our culture that we can navigate. Sometimes they don't have kind of deep theological issues. They just don't feel like they belong in our congregations. And there's hundreds of things that we can do to make our congregations more welcoming and accepting um, and, and to tolerate individual beliefs and tolerate people who have doubts and tolerate people who, you know, don't do all of the things the way we think they ought to do them. Um, and when we do that, we create a place where, where they can come and uh, they can spiritually connect and they can feel inspiration about how they should live their lives, uh, and, and they can feel like they can even express who they are and what they feel, and that people around them will put their arms around them and say, thanks, I, I, I better understand, or I, I love you, thanks for expressing uh, your feelings and concerns. So I, th I think those are, you know, those are good starts. So what... What's the goal? You said not to have an agenda, but um, did you talk to anybody who whose leaders responded by listening and then they chose to come back to involvement? I mean, are there no. are there examples where people's people's minds changed because of the response from compassionate leaders? Yeah, let me. Um, so I did. I mentioned I did a focus group where, um, uh, you know, I'd asked, I think I had 80 some odd people in it, and I asked um, one woman um, in it, and he, she said this, um, I trust my bishop. I know he has experienced a faith crisis and is still in. He chose to see the goodness of the people he serves despite historical issues or current policies. He wants to bring diversity of thought and inclusion of all people to the ward. He asked the questions, how can I make people's lives better? How can I lift others? He took a risk by asking me to serve as the Relief Society president. Even though he knows my doubts and my intense struggles, he is truly a good man. I believe it is rare to find a bishop like this, and I'm very fortunate. 
without him, I'd be one step closer to sending my resignation. And, and you know, those those kinds of stories, I don't know how common they are. You know, I this isn't a statistically representative um, analysis. I don't know how to make that. Um, but in the faith crisis member survey I did, and this is 320 people that are in a faith crisis, these are people who want to stay. I asked them to express their agreement to this statement. I want to belong to the church community if I can be who I am. 38% strongly agreed with that. 51% agreed. So you've got 89% of these 320 people that want to belong to church. Um, But then, you know, you ask them about their personal differences, and I asked agreement about my ward accepts me as I am, and only 2% strongly agreed. So there's this disconnect between um, let me come and and, uh, belong and, um, and, and be who I am and feeling acceptance uh, from the community. It happens. It, it just, it would be wonderful it could, if it could happen more. So, Dave, it sounds like at least a number of people who have left the church, it's not that they're, they're turning their back on religion. They still might want to have conversations about God and conversations about beliefs, but they may not want to always discuss why they specifically left. Is, is there a room for that in church meetings or in conversations? It sounds like there should be. Yeah, I mean, this is, this is a great dilemma in the church. Um, it's uh, something I call establishing faithful places. So let's say you're Mike and you come up with concerns, you're Amanda. Where do you go with those? Do you raise your hand in Sunday school and say, you know, I got a problem with this? Pretty much everyone in the class wants to kind of come for peace and hope and connection. And, you know, these things are difficult to discuss. So where do they go? And and the answer right now is some wards, and a very few that I know of, uh, are trying to establish kind of faithful places where people can find expression uh a place to talk about these kinds of issues. And and those leaders know that if they don't, that people will be alone or will find often a virtual community or other groups of people that do know about the concerns or can relate to them in some way and and talk with them. It doesn't pull them out of the church per se, but it it means that um, uh, there isn't a place that opens and closes with prayers where then you can hash out you know, the tough topics like Joseph Smith's polygamy or something like that. Um, you know, you're, you're discussing it on, a, on, on Facebook or on Twitter or in a Reddit thread. And often that place doesn't, um, you know, provide kind of the space that that individual person needs to be able to explore that in all of the dimensions that it could be explored. So that's, that's kind of the challenge that we have on this. And, um, uh, and, um, you know, I'm, I'm not sure the adaptation that um, the church institutionally will approach to that, um, but I know that there's wards that individually are trying to do things there to be able to make those faithful places uh, more accessible um, and, and um, you know, useful to people as they have these kinds of concerns. Dave, I, I would hope ultimately that it happens in families. 
I kind of look back and, you know, I'm in my 60s and all my kids are millennials and, you know, adults. Um, but, but I would have liked to have had more information as I was raising my kids where we could have had these kinds of conversations in my family so that they don't, you know, end up being 35 and finding some historic issue that, you know, you know breaks their shelf, but that they can have these kinds of discussions and not just know about the issue, but then to put it in co- some sort of context around faith. So you raised a question I was, I was going to ask about the institutional church. I mean, the church has taken steps. You know, a new new history books coming out with a a more complete, I guess, straightforward account of the faith's beginnings that will, of course, continue to go through to the current day. Is there anything more that the church as an institution could or should do to help Latter Day Saints, who not are not are not only those that are disaffiliated or disaffected, but those ministering to those? Is there anything that the church as an institution could do? You know, um, clearly they can. I'm, you know, so much of this, Dave, is above my pay grade. You know, I don't have a lot of perspective mm-hmm. on what goes on in kind of the, the grand councils of the church. I, I did ask local leaders whether they felt like, um, I asked them two questions. One is, do you feel like you're getting adequate training to address faith crisis in your ward or in your family. And um, leaders are optimistic about the kind of training they get, and they don't get it. They say they don't get it. And then I ask them, how confident are you that you can address these issues in your ward or your family? And again, they're not confident. So there is this gap that exists there. And um, uh I, I think there's a, a void that needs to be filled, and I, I'm not sure how the church should approach it. I, I realize how complicated the issue, this issue is, having lived in, you know, third world parts of the church, India and Africa. Um, I, I understand that uh, uh, having kind of a, a singular approach to the development of faith and, and, and leadership is very complicated around this particular set of issues. So I'm not sure the best way that, that they should address it, but clearly local leaders, when I ask them, say it's a need. They see it as important, and they're not sure what to do. What about U.S. versus other places? That's one of the things that difficult with the church taking an institutional approach is that conditions are so different and the faith dilemmas are so different in different places. Yeah, so I taught uh, gospel doctrine class in Chennai, India, for about a year. But trust me, they're not thinking about these issues. You know, women speak Tamil, but men speak English. You know, yeah. That's you know, just not there. And then as a mission president in Sierra Leone, you know, our missionaries would teach about at a 12-year-old level. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, you're really dealing with basic issues. Uh, I also have lived in London. Um, I, I was in the Hyde Park Ward in London for about three years, and, you know, we had 90 nationalities in our ward, and from au pairs from the Philippines to, you know, um, multi-billionaires, you know, or maybe not billionaires, but super hyper-rich. So, you know, it's just... It's just so different from place to place. We talk about the church as being the same everywhere, but it's just not. Yeah. yeah. So um, I have great sympathy 
to our church leaders that are trying to administer a global program and make a curriculum and leadership work the same place in every part of the world. And know just if you're in Cambridge and you know your your ward is full of graduate students, you better be talking about it differently than if you're in Freetown, Sierra Leone, and you know people are just worried about whether they're going to get their next meal. Yeah, it sounds like uh, the local church leaders need to take the heart, the local adaptation council that they're given to make sure that they really do do that. Yeah, I mean, there's a section in Handbook 2 called Local Adaptation. You know, I don't know why we never read that. So I asked these local leaders, you know, I got 520 of them to respond, and I asked them, you know, has one of your family, has one of your children had a faith crisis? And for those that had children, 64% said yes. Yeah. Um, you know, how about your family or close friends? 97% of them said yes. So, yeah, I mean, it's everywhere. It's in, you know, it's it's in our congregations. These members, um, I, I ask these faith crisis members whether people even know you're having a faith crisis, and, and they don't. They mm-hmm. look bright and shiny in the pews wearing their Sunday best, you know, serving in their callings, and underneath they're going, or at least some of them, a few of them, in every ward, I'm sure, they're going, I don't know if I believe anymore. Right. You know, I don't know what to do about this. And, you know, it can be the policy, it can be, you know, history, it can be, uh, I'm, I'm a liberal, I can't stand the Trumpism, you know, you pick the issue, it can be any one of those issues. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I'm guessing, just like the Catholics and the abuse crisis, at some level, all those members in other countries are going to start having their own faith crises, maybe just not yet. Mm-hmm. So t- yeah, to mean, train they, people, leaders, to respond differently is going to be worthwhile down the road, too. So, you know, I had this discussion with... Um, uh, Melissa Inouye, who you probably know, and yeah. mm-hmm. we were we were talking about some of the challenges with regards to LGBTQ. I guess she has parents that are serving a mission in DR Congo, and and I know Africa. And um, she said, you know, if even any sort of moderate steps that the church goes through to um, deal with liberalism around this policy, you know, blows up whole congregations and whole communities. You know, in parts of the world that just think about these issues so differently. So, if if it's a yeah. policy that yeah. that that you know is going to be a concern in a worldwide church, if mm-hmm. it's you know, we we never I I kind of regret it. I was submission president when the essays came out, and you know I should have had all of our missionaries read the essay on race and the priesthood, but um, uh, you know I I. I I, I don't know how um, educated Africans, um, when they understand our history with regards to um, race and the priesthood, kind of process that, whether there aren't similar issues there. So you can pick the issue and you can see how it'll play difficult in a difficult way in one part of the world or another. And and uh, you know, so I, I do have a lot of sympathy for church leaders as they're trying to uh, move into this international world with full transparency um, and with, you know, permitting dialogue around some of these issues. 
So ultimately, what do you hope this your book accomplishes? Have you sent it to the church leaders? <laughs> <laughs> no, you know they. I, you know, if it's important, they'll find it. Um, um, for me, for me, you know, it, it served two purposes. One is an individual purpose for for me to kind of go through this issue comprehensively, but but I hope it will um, create dialogue in the ward councils and in families where these kinds of issues can be discussed. And, and because they're discussed, maybe with some understanding that comes from the book, hopefully uh, I convey it well, um, that they will, um, you know, kind of get on their knees and see what they need to do um, to kind of address this with kind of the tools that are available to them in their wards. And, and I believe that there are so many of them that they could use so many issues could be addressed in um, the, the, the culture and the approach that we take in our local congregations. And, and they don't require us to deviate from handbooks or to require you know, some grand change um, you know, from on high. They're just things that we can do because we're more aware of them. So I, I guess it's a fool's errand to try and change culture. I don't have any realistic... Uh, expectation that my book will do that, um, but perhaps it can be a resource in individual circumstances where people can be better informed, more understanding, more compassionate, um, that will help them uh, find better ways to address this issue in their homes and in their wards. David Osler, thanks so much for joining us today. You're welcome. Thanks for um, giving me an opportunity to get the talk. And good luck with the book, and thanks to Peggy Fletcher-Stack for her coverage. Always a pleasure. And we also thank our producer, Sarah Weber, and we'll talk again next week on Mormonland. <laughs>